Hello, and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. When I started this little project, what I had in my mind was doing research and sharing it in this podcast. I'm just interested in finding the truth of what's out there and what is here from out there. I have encountered so many contrary bits of information that I'm finding it hard to get to the truth. The amount of disinformation being spread is unbelievable and confusing. I never considered myself a skeptic, but with some of the people I've come across, I wouldn't believe them if they told me the Pope was Catholic. It is extremely hard to tell the difference between what is true and what isn't. That being said, I'm only going to pass along information to you. I may even give you my opinion on whether I believe in something or not. You must make up your own mind. Remember, believe in nothing you hear and half of what you read. In this episode, we are going to discuss Close Encounters. Most people know Close Encounters from the Steven Spielberg's 1977 movie starring Richard Dreyfuss, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but I'm going a little deeper. First of all, I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a brilliant film. It stands the test of time and is just as good today as when it came out. It is about an alien spacecraft that visits and communicates telepathically to a few of the characters in the film. They are led to Devil's Tower in Wyoming where, well, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it for you. You can rent it on YouTube or on Prime. Uh, It starts with a group of scientists finding planes from the Flight 19 that disappeared during the training mission that left Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The planes were just sitting in the desert in Mexico, I think. I think it was Mexico. Um, In the exact condition they were in when they disappeared. It is believed by many that they disappeared as a result of being in the Bermuda Triangle. The next thing, and you're going to love what I found out about this. They're in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And they found the ship, the Cotopaxi, which is also believed to have been lost in the Bermuda Triangle. Most people know about the Bermuda Triangle, and they know about Flight 19, but not as many people have heard of the Cotopaxi. The ship they used in the film didn't look anything like the Cotopaxi. The real ship was smaller and had a regular route carrying coal from Charleston, South Carolina to Havana, Cuba. In 1925, on the way to Havana, they sent a distress call. They had run into a terrible storm with 32 crew members aboard. Because there were no survivors and nothing was ever found, Rumors started flying around that it disappeared as a result of the Bermuda Triangle. Well, they actually found it in 2020, not in the Gobi Desert, but 35 miles off the coast of St. Augustine, Florida. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. In case you didn't know, J. Allen Hynek, the astronomer, professor, and ufologist, was a consultant for the film. He actually had a cameo role towards the end. You see him with his beard and pipe looking at the spaceship. J. Allen Hynek created the system to catalog UFO reports, close encounters. The first three are not considered close encounters. They are nocturnal lights, daylight discs, and radar visual. Nocturnal lights is self-explanatory. It is lights in the night sky. I think we hear more about this than any other kind of sighting, and they can be explained away easier. I watched a few videos online of lights in the night sky. There are triangle lights in Texas. Nobody has come up with a good, solid explanation for that one. And there are the Bushy Creek lights, also in Texas, where five green lights, almost in an oval shape, 
are in the night sky. Uh, two of them move away, and they come back, and then all of all five streak across the sky. When I saw this, I immediately thought drones. Uh, they looked exactly like drones to me. Uh, nobody's either proved or disproven uh, anything on this one. Now, daylight discs are UFOs seen in the daytime, generally having a discoidal or oval shape. When the Pentagon released the Navy pilot videos, we, we all saw that. The Tic Tac. I love the government's response for that. Uh, they are not ours, and we don't know what they are. They've had these videos for years now, and they still haven't figured them out. I haven't heard anybody even guess at what these things could be. Apparently, there's a whole fleet of these strange Tic Tacs. Are we being observed? Who knows? The next one, radar visual, which are UFO reports that have radar confirmation. These supposedly try to offer harder evidence that the objects are real. Although radar propagation can occasionally be discredited due to atmospheric propagation anomalies. Also, many times when pilots report seeing things, they are not showing up on radar at all. Okay, now we're at the first close encounter. Close encounter of the first kind, or CE-1, is defined as visual sightings of an unidentified flying object seemingly less than 500 feet away that show an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. This is what I saw when I was a kid. These are hard to explain away. The details are what make this one interesting. When you get that close, you can't say that it's a weather balloon or swamp gas. It may be man-made, could be top secret, but who's going to admit that? So this is where we can get into the disinformation campaign. The Air Force or government is not going to say, okay, you got us. That is the next evolution of fighter aircraft. It is more likely that they will run with the idea that you saw a craft from another planet. But that doesn't jive with Roswell. In the Roswell incident, they did the exact opposite. If it was top secret U.S. craft, they would, you would think, let people believe that they had seen a craft and pilots from outer space. A close encounter of the second kind is a UFO event in which physical evidence is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, physiological effects such as paralysis or heat and discomfort in the witness, or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched earth, or otherwise affected vegetation, or a chemical trace. So this can be physical evidence, but it would be incredibly hard to prove. Who's to say that the depressions in the ground weren't made by the witness as part of a hoax? It would be just as hard to prove a CE2 as it would be a CE1. With everyone walking around with cameras now, we should be getting more UFOs caught on video than ever before. But we also have very good editing tools, so people that are tech savvy would be able to produce good, believable videos and pictures. So now, it is going to take even more evidence to convince me. It's a double-edged sword. The more technologically advanced we get, the easier it is to record UFOs and also the easier it is to create hoaxes. A close encounter of the third kind is where an animated entity is present. These include humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of UFO. UFO researcher Ted Bilcher proposed six subtypes for the CE3 in Hynek scale. A. Aboard. An entity is observed only inside the UFO. B. Both. An entity is observed 
inside and outside the UFO. C. Close. An entity is observed near a UFO, but not going in or out. D. Direct. An entity is observed. No UFOs are seen by the observer, but UFO activity has been reported in the area about the same time. E. Excluded. An entity is observed, but no UFOs are seen. UFO activity has been reported in the area at the time. F. Frequence. No entity or UFOs are observed, but the subject experiences some sort of intelligent communication. It would be really hard to believe someone who had a CE3F. If I came to you and told you that I had been contacted by an extraterrestrial through telepathy, and he told me X, Y, and Z, your first impulse is to think that I'm lying or I had a strange dream last night. Believing that it actually happened would be the last thing anyone would think no matter how convincing I was. A close encounter of the fourth kind is a UFO event in which a human is abducted by a UFO or its occupants. People claiming to have been abducted are usually called abductees or experiencers. We don't know how many alleged abductees there are. One of the earliest studies of abductions found 1,700 claimants, while other surveys argue that 5-6% to of the general population might have been abducted. If that were true, it would be a very large number of people being taken. There are some widely known cases such as the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, the Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker abduction, the Travis Walton abduction, Elizabeth Clarer, Antonio Willis Boez, the Pascagoula abduction, the Robert Taylor incident, Willie Stryber, and Ming Zhaohua incident. I don't even know if I said that right. And for every well-documented abduction, there are hundreds of less-known cases where people have experienced alien abduction. Each case has its unique differences, but all have a common thread. The study of alien abduction phenomenon often begins with a UFO sighting. The sighting may occur in childhood, and the individual will have UFO encounters throughout their lives. Some abductees will remember their abduction, but some will require hypnosis regression to draw details of their experience. As I mentioned before in episode 4, when you start getting into hypnosis, you have to be careful not to plant memories in the abductee, leading the witness, so to speak. During some of these hypnotic sessions, some people find out that they were abducted when they were children and have been abducted regularly throughout their lives. Maybe. (laughs) Alien abductions are rarely a one-time event. Many experiencers have missing time. Many experiencers also have PTSD. That means they really believe what they are saying. Some experiencers report having pleasant experiences. Others report traumatizing events. Some people report waking up and seeing gray aliens at the foot of the bed and not being able to move. Some describe aliens opening a wall like a tent or black holes appearing in the ceiling or wall, or even just in the middle of the room. Some people are taken through walls, doors, or windows without opening them. UFO abductions did not achieve widespread attention until the 1960s. There were many similar stories circulating decades earlier. These early abduction-like accounts have been dubbed paleo-abductions by UFO researcher Jerome Clark. In an 1897 edition of Stockton, California Daily Mail, 
Colonel H.G. Shaw claimed he and a friend were harassed by three tall, slender humanoids whose bodies were covered with a fine, downy hair. Colonel Shaw reported that these beings tried to kidnap the pair. The 1955 publication of Harold T. Wilkins' Flying Saucers Uncensored declared that Carl Hunrath and Wilbur Wilkinson, who had claimed they had been contacted by aliens, had disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Wilkins reported his speculation that the two were victims of alleged abduction by flying saucers. A wave of contactee cases emerged in the 1950s as well. These individuals claimed to have been contacted by aliens. However, the substance of contactee narratives is often regarded as quite different from alien abduction accounts. Widespread publicity was generated by the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case in 1961. The Hill incident was probably the prototypical alien abduction case and was perhaps the first in which the victims described beings that would later be known as the Greys. There are groups that study the abduction phenomenon and, according to them, can actually explain the reasons for the abductions. They can describe the various types of aliens, the Greys, the Reptilians, Nordics, and so on. And each type of alien has specific roles origins, and motivations. Abduction claimants do not always attempt to explain the phenomenon, but some take independent research interest in it themselves. Often, abductees share experiences or recall meeting other abductees on board a spacecraft. However, most alien abductions occur to individuals to prove what has happened to them. In Episode 3, The Dulce Base, I introduced Dr. Sprinkle. Dr. Ronald Sprinkle, a University of Wyoming psychologist, he became interested in the abduction phenomenon in the 1960s. For some years, he was probably the only academic figure devoting any time to studying or researching abduction accounts. Sprinkle became convinced of the phenomenon's reality and was perhaps the first to suggest a link between abduction and cattle mutilations. Eventually, Sprinkle came to believe that he had been abducted by aliens in his youth. After that, he was forced from his job in 1989. Being an abductee often has repercussions on the experiencer's career and social life. Some have even turned the experiences into ways of expressing themselves and educating others. The late Bud Hopkins, a painter and a sculptor by profession, had been interested in UFOs for some years. In the 1970s, he became interested in abduction reports and began using hypnosis to act more details of dimly remembered events. Hopkins soon became a figurehead of the growing abductee subculture. The mid and late 1980s saw the involvement of two esteemed academic figures, Harvard psychiatrist John Mack and historian David M. Jacobs. This decade, saw a major degree of mainstream attention to the subject. Works by Bud Hopkins, Whitney Stryber, David M. Jacobs, and John Edward Mack presented alien abduction as a genuine phenomenon. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior, with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. 
Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Jacobson Hopkins argued that alien abduction was far more common than earlier suspected. They estimated that tens of thousands of North Americans had been taken by unexplained beings. Furthermore, Jacobs and Hopkins believed that there was an elaborate scheme underway that the aliens were attempting to create human-alien hybrids. Though the motives for hybrids were unknown, there were reports of phantom pregnancy related to UFO encounter at least as early as the 1960s. (laughs) That's about as believable as the dog ate my homework. Bud Hopkins, and especially David M. Jacobs, were instrumental in popularizing the idea of widespread systematic interbreeding efforts on the part of the alien intruders. Jacobs presents this scenario as not only plausible, but self-evident. Dr. David Jacobs, author of The Threat, Revealing the Secret Alien Agenda, said, quote, The entire abduction event is precisely orchestrated. All of the procedures are predetermined. There is no standing around deciding what to do next. The beings are task-oriented, and there is no indication whatsoever that they've been able to find of any aspect of their lives outside of performing the abduction procedures, end quote. Alien abductions follow a standard scenario. First, the capture. An abductee is rendered incapable of resisting and taking from terrestrial surroundings to an apparent alien spacecraft. Then, the examination. Physiological and psychological procedures, training, and testing. Next is the conference. The abductors communicate with the abductee or direct them to interact with specific individuals for some purpose, usually instructed telepathically. In some cases, abductees are given a tour of the ship. Abductees often rapidly forget the majority of their experience, either as a result of fear, medical intervention, or both. The abductees are returned to Earth occasionally in a different location from where they were allegedly taken and with new injuries. Many experiencers describe unusual feelings after an abduction. They have a profound sense of love, a high similar to those induced by certain drugs, or a mystical experience accompanied by a feeling of oneness with God, the universe, or their abductors. Whether this is the result of a metaphysical change, Stockholm Syndrome, or prior medical tampering remains a mystery. The abductee must then cope with psychological, physical, and social effects of the experience. Some proposed psychological alternative explanations of the abduction phenomenon have included hallucinations, temporary schizophrenia, seizures, parasomnia, near-sleep mental state, such as night terrors and sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis, in particular, a theory often accepted by skeptics, is accompanied by hallucinations and a particular sensation of malevolence or a neutral presence of something in the room, although usually people experiencing it do not interpret that something as aliens. 
proving alien abductions is difficult without obvious physical evidence. When an experiencer is returned, all he has to prove his encounters are fragments of memories left intact by the aliens. Though throughout the history of UFO studies, countless cases have occurred that do indeed present physical evidence. Many are not aware of this, or the facts of the case are simply ignored. Details in each case often are the proof that an encounter happened, but even with specific details, we are left with the account and the sincerity of the witness. California podiatrist Dr. Roger Lear, author of The Aliens and the Scalpel, Scientific Proof of Extraterrestrial Implants in Humans, claims to have removed alien implants from patients. Alien implants is a term used in ufology to describe a physical object placed in someone's body after they have been abducted by aliens. Claimed abilities of the implants range from telepresence, mind control, and biotelemetry. The way we tag animals for study. As with UFO subjects in general, the idea of alien implants has seen very little attention from mainstream scientists. Lear claims that the implants put out a strong magnetic field when they are in the body, but when they are removed, they don't do anything. One recommendation from skeptics is to try to trick the aliens into presenting evidence such as bringing back something from the spacecraft, or set up a camera trap to record an abduction. This has been tried, and in each case, the camera simply failed. And the experiencers are so closely watched and controlled during an abduction that taking something is impossible. So much for hard evidence. Now, on to the last close encounter, CE5. This is the invention of Dr. Stephen Greer. Dr. Greer is trained as an emergency room doctor, and before that, he learned transcendental meditation. He retired in 1998 as a physician to pursue his UFO interests. In 1990, Greer founded the Center for Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, CSETI, to create a diplomatic and research-based initiative to contact extraterrestrial civilizations. The group defines CE5, or Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, as a human-initiated contact and communication with extraterrestrial life. Greer claims that through meditation, he can contact ETs and invite them to visit. He has a following, and there are groups of people who get together, these mass meditations, and have visits from ETs. There are three documentaries about Greer and CE5. In 2013, he co-produced Sirius, which details his work and hypothesis regarding ET life, government cover-ups, and CE5. In 2017, Unacknowledged, a crowd-funded documentary featuring Greer. And in 2020, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Contact Has Begun. Watch them if you like. I did. If you listen to someone long enough with an open mind, not necessarily a skeptical mind, but an open mind, you will either believe them or you won't believe them. At one point, in one of his documentaries, I can't remember which, Greer explains what actually happened in 1947 with the UFO crash at Roswell. He explains that the UFO was actually down by an advanced electromagnetic weapon that was hidden in a radar gun, and that all of this is documented on the FBI website. 
Remember what I said about believing none of what you hear and half of what you read? Well, here you go. I'll be polite and just say that I don't believe it. If you have a military advanced enough to shoot down an alien spacecraft with an advanced electromagnetic weapon, why would you wait for the rancher to find the crash? Well, you wouldn't. It would be cleaned up before the rancher had his morning coffee. It's up to you what you believe. Do you personally have a UFO story? Let me know. You can email me at ufoandalienpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.